Hi, and welcome to this exciting episode of the Winning Parenting Podcast. Today, we're going to speak once more about addiction. In an earlier episode, I interviewed York Ast, a leadership coach whose son battled addiction. He provided great insight from a parental point of view. Check out episode three if you haven't yet listened. Today, I want to talk with someone who had an addiction issue who made it his life's mission to help parents and children overcome addiction. So I'm excited to introduce Steve Feldman. He has over 40 years experience as a business owner and entrepreneur. His journey to recovery from addiction began in 1992 and has become the foundation of his life and work. He is the CEO at Feinberg Consulting, a company that helps families manage addiction, mental health issues, and family health care crises. He's a trained interventionist, uh, but sadly, he's seen too many people repeatedly go through the healthcare system with little results. And as a result, his aim is to give families and those in trouble the resources to get them the right help fast and make it stick. He's based in Bloomfield, Michigan, with an office also in Delray Beach, Florida, and he works virtually and in person. And I wanted to welcome you, Steve. Well, thank you. Thanks very much for having me. Great. So um, just diving right in, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your struggle and how you got into this business of helping parents and children battling addiction issues. Yeah. Well, you know, it is, um, we're going to keep this short. So I'll I'll uh, I'll explain it and I'll explain it in a way that helps, you know, make sense as to where where we are today. But, you know, um, separate from business uh, and going back many, many years, I uh, grew up with somebody who began to explore with substances and got addicted and um, uh once addicted, decisions started to be made that, although weren't in my best interest, I thought they may have been. So the person that I was was making decisions that um, didn't really represent the things that I really wanted in my life. Uh, but what addiction was able to do was numb pain and and numb discomfort and avoid dealing with things that in my life were challenging, like many people had. So it's not about blaming or shaming anything about what happened in my in my past. But I grew up in a home with a with a super uh, angry and emotionally abusive father, who uh, I'm, loved me completely. But his ability to handle his own stuff uh, was really challenging. And ultimately, it ended in me utilizing trying to get comfortable and get help outside of myself. So without going into a whole lot of that, it ended up in at age 31, I'm 62 today. So half my life ago, it ended up in, in me um, running out of options to do this on my own. And what ultimately happened is, is it became a money thing. I had to, um, I had to make a decision to come clean with my family about what was going on. And I had an opportunity to either continue doing what I was doing and not have the support of my family. And I was in a family business at the time as well and continue working. And at that point, I went into treatment. And, and my experience of treatment allowed me to 
treat the addiction and get clean and sober, which April 17th in 1992 was the last day I used a drug and a drink and, and began to uh, move into a way that uh, was about recovery. And recovery at the beginning was certainly not using drugs and alcohol anymore, but ultimately that's not what it was about. It was about healing what drove the pain, what drove the want to, to avoid discomfort, what had me avoid. And, um, you know, over the years, there was a lot of, lot of, uh, of, of work that was done both by working with a therapist, by being involved in a, a support group, AA was something that was very, very supportive, uh, in my, in my life. And 12 steps are a way to live, uh, a, a way to live life. And, um, as, as time went on, um, I was able to really start to gain some perspective and, and momentum in how to utilize the things that were learned in personal recovery and bring them into business. And I was doing business consulting at the time and, and started working with Pam Feinberg, who's the founder of our company, uh, on, on how to grow the business. And Feinberg Consulting was a case management business helping people that had been injured in catastrophic auto accidents. And it was very medically focused. And we, we what we recognized together was there's an opportunity in the behavioral health space to provide support, coordination, and advocacy for individuals and families struggling with addiction and, and mental health issues and, and any type of behavioral or process addiction. And all of a sudden, the ability to start to move in that direction with something that was a passion for my own life and a passion of really wanting to be able to help other people has merged. And Feinberg Consulting is a company that most of the time families call us. Sometimes the, the client or the, the person of concern calls wanting help for themselves, but most of the time it's a family member that's calling. And we work with families to help identify really what the challenge is, what's going on, and begin to come up with plans and strategies on, on how to shift things. So there's a, a whole bunch, but try to wrap it up. Thanks for that. Uh, and, you know, half your life you spent struggling and either through treatment or through, you know, mainly uh, you know, a decision on your own, you said, I want to live my life differently. And you made that decision and you used the treatment to help you get through that. And congratulations on being, you know, clean for 31 years now. That's yeah, great. no, thank you. And by the way, just to, to be really clear, that didn't mean that the struggles were over. Maybe, yes. maybe more struggles from 31 to 62, but better able to handle them. Fair point. Fair point. Mm -hmm. No, it's like once once you're an addict, you're always an addict, right? You just have to, you're just managing through it. Okay. You have a couple of things that you've suggested to me that I just wanted to get your take on it. That there were really interesting thoughts that you had. One was a philosophy that balanced continual efforts towards optimal self-care and ongoing personal development or everything when it comes to being your best. Mm -hmm. Can you comment on that? Uh, and and yeah, you think you it's know, important? That, absolutely. What happens and what we 
observe in many cases in working with the people that we work with and in my own personal experience, struggles with challenges in families, whether it is poor communication, whether it's anxiety and depression, whether it's issues of addiction, these types of things become very worrisome, become emotional for people. And we're, we really don't come with uh, operating systems on how to deal with it. So it's worry, it's stress, it's anxiety that comes along. Sometimes it's anger, sometimes it's resentment, sometimes it's all of these things. Those are not things that go into the category of self-care. And what no, happens no. is those are things that empty our tank. And if we can look at self-care as a, as a tank or an account, that our best decisions, our best life, our best connection with other people comes when that tank is filled the most. So it's really being able to identify the kinds of things that are necessary to fill that tank. And it doesn't happen in one day. It is really a continual um, uh it's really a continual effort that allows us to put a deposit in. It could be a good night's sleep. It could be good nutrition. It could be a workout. It could be a therapy session. It could be uh, yoga, meditation, uh, providing service to other people, but it's doing it from a tank that's full. And, you know, for me, there's certain non-negotiables that are really important that help fill that tank. And it's it's an overused analogy, but it's a very strong one, right? Is that when you get on the plane and they talk about if something were to happen and you needed an oxygen mask, you put yours on first. Yeah. And and this is, you know, a, this is the context, the container in which recovery and healing is held in. And that is positive self-care. Okay. Let me ask a follow-up to that because some of it is self-care. What you refer to is really valid and it's activity-based. Find something that you like doing that makes you feel better about yourself and feel better about your situation so that you can deal with adversity. But isn't some of it just attitude and the way you look at life? Like like I have been trained in in IPEC, which is an energy level. And you, you might be familiar with it, I'm sure. Yeah. And if you are at a level one or a level two, it's giving up or just saying, I'll, I'll never figure this out, as opposed to looking at opportunities for you to win, maybe not others to win. But then as your energy level goes up to the highest points, you're looking for win-win solutions all the time and you're optimistic. And if you have that kind of attitude, you're, you're, you know, the, the strain on your life is so different. Uh, in terms of the way you can maneuver and face adversity and connect with people and all the rest. And so, um, you know, I certainly try and get my exercise in and try and eat right and try to do things that I enjoy doing. But if I, if, would you agree that if you, if you face them with a positive attitude, it's easier said than done. Sometimes your energy level goes down and, you know, a hundred percent, right? No, I agree with you a hundred percent. And part of you know, part of what I like to look at is the the ability to um, support a positive attitude. I'm better able to have a positive attitude when I've slept well, when I have a consistent exercise, when I'm eating right. Those things are going to allow me 
to be in a space of, if I recognize that my attitude and the energy that I uh, come with is very, very important, then that's a focus. It's an important focus. And it's best supported through yeah. um, being able to have a full tank. Yeah. So I think so, it's an and. I, I think that's a great clarification. And I appreciate you know, that very much. Yeah. I, I, the, I think that mindfulness, you know, some people will call it meditation, mindfulness, awareness is a super important point. Because when you're talking about attitude and 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 a positive attitude, there's so much noise that happens when we're not consciously present. The noise and chatter from what's in the rearview mirror, the fear and anxiety of what might be next, and the constant bouncing back between those two things creates a noise and a chatter that really is hard to focus on what's happening. So even with my intention to have a positive attitude, I have an environment of chaos going on because I'm thinking about what didn't happen right yesterday and what might happen tomorrow that I'm potentially afraid of. And mindfulness has a the ability to begin to quiet that or to even be able to notice what it is and understand the relationship to that. So it's understanding that there is a there is a voice in the head and it's not necessarily who you are it's something that's coming up yeah and you know for me part of the the uh, non-negotiable self-care is to sit for 10 minutes in the morning and focus on breathing and just notice the thoughts that are coming and not hang on to them see if i can let them go and come back to the breath yeah, meditation and breathing exercises are great. And what you reminded me is just different people have different ways of self-care. Like if I'm going to be in a class or a conference all day, I get stir crazy. So if I get to the gym in the morning before I attend, knowing I'm going to be sitting all day, it, mm -hmm. it makes a world of difference, right? Just and, and yeah. my head's in the right place. Okay. Thanks for exploring that. Okay. So you've also suggested everyone's focused on outcome and results, and we really need to understand cause and process better. What do you mean by that? Yeah, it's it's interesting that you say that because we really were just having that conversation. You know, if somebody is interested in some outcome, then there are significant inputs to that outcome that are going to better allow that outcome to happen. So the great example is uh, if somebody wants to become an Olympic level downhill skier, and that's what their, their goal is, they wanna win a medal. There's a certain uh, training regiment that's super important. And that training regiment is really a commitment-based regiment that is has, let's say Wednesday morning is gonna be a 5 a.m. leg day. And the leg day consists of these things. And if I wake up on Wednesday morning and I don't feel like going to the gym and doing legs, um, and my input is to continue to stay in bed to be comfortable, then I'm not really supporting what I'm saying I want my outcome to be. And there's many cases people are wanting of some outcome, uh, myself as well, 
And then when we really look at what the input is, it makes sense that that result isn't happening. So it begs a couple of really important questions. A, is the result really what I want? And if it is, then what do I need to address to help the input line up with what the result is? That's great. Uh, and some people don't recognize the process nor embrace the process or enjoy the process. They enjoy the process as opposed to just, and the journey as opposed to just the outcome. It's a different yeah. ball. I think, I think there's a challenging part of all this. And the challenging part of this is that, and I'll speak for myself, I, like left to my own, I'm feeling driven. I'll do stuff based on what I feel, not necessarily with what lines up with what is in my best interest for long-term sustainable growth, healing, yeah. recovery. That's the front part of your brain. Yeah, man. Yeah. And and being able to recognize that the initial discomfort can wreck can result in the long-term bliss. You know, there's a there's a saying that talks about the poison in the beginning can become the the nectar in the end, and the nectar in the beginning becomes the poison in the end. And when we talk about addiction, addiction is something that is looking for a immediate hit, fix feeling that has long-term poison. And recovery is that thing that is not, doesn't taste so well at the beginning, but through that beginning piece ends up with long-term nectar. Well done. Okay. Um... Getting into your practice a little bit and talking about people who are struggling with um, their situation and their addiction and they come to you, you know, before they even do that, how do they know they need to get a mental health diagnosis? Yeah, I, you know, the the fact that somebody needs or doesn't need a mental health diagnosis is not the initial issue. Really what happens is our phone rings when people are in pain and discomfort in some sort of crisis. And, you know, it would be nice if somebody reaches out earlier, but most of the time when our phone rings, there's been things that have tried or there have been failed attempts and and they're looking for they're looking for a greater level of help. My um my take on all of this is, and it's not exactly to your question, is that mental health issues and addiction, they thrive in the darkness. And that darkness is isolated, not talking about it, stigmatized by it, um uh afraid of it. And the the easy answer is to it um, is really how do we get this out in the open and how do we talk about it and how do we recognize that there's lots of people that are struggling with something that's not a moral failing. So like ideally, if I could wave a magic wand, it would be that people talk about this uh, and get help quicker. For us, what happens is people are calling and it's more in a crisis. Right. 
And some people put things off to avoid it or hope it just gets better, right? That's part of the condition. Yeah, that's right. This is a condition that says it's it, it, something will be different tomorrow. And, you know, uh, I think what's Im important here is to recognize that when something isn't working, if I continue to try things over and over again that aren't working, it it's helpful to do something different. Definition of insanity, right? Um, so how do you conduct and get a proper mental health diagnosis? So for us, a big part of what we do is, is we're going to do an initial assessment, a biopsychosocial, getting information uh, as much as we can about the family and family system, as well as the individual and their situation. And from that, we're going to make recommendations of what a plan of addressing whatever it is. And that plan is going to include recommendations of the level of care and what type of care. And from, from that, we also are well versed in knowing about the providers of different care uh, all over the country. So in many cases, if it is a significant mental health issue, and there has not been a diagnosis, or maybe we have a sense that somebody could potentially be misdiagnosed, we will, um, we have providers that we work with that we're going to recommend that will ultimately make uh, or, or address the diagnosis issue. But isn't the objective to find the cause, not just diagnose? Well, the objective to, to us is how do we look at the situation of where somebody is at and what and where we would like to go and then put a plan together that's going to support that. Got so it. diagnosis is not the answer, right? And a lot of times we have people coming to us with, with significant substance use issues. It's not about diagnosing them as addicts. It's about what's driving this. It's, it's yes, we got to get them sober because nothing is ever happens good when somebody's uh, abusing a, a substance. But it is ultimately what's underneath that. What is driving it? Is it trauma? Is there significant underlying mental health issues? Is there medical issues that could be driving this? And and that's where, and, and part of our approach is not looking things only through a behavioral health lens, but also looking through a medical lens because we have both behavioral health and uh, medical staff. Understood. So you're a, you're an interventionist. What, what are men, mental health interventions? So you know there there's a couple of ways to look at this. The word intervention to to us is really the same as interruption, and an intervention is interrupting a path of something that isn't working. You know, you in the summertime, you drive somewhere, there's a lot of interventions, and those interventions are road construction. There's a road that's broken down, it's got potholes, it's cracked, it needs to be replaced. They interrupt the traffic by putting a blockade in, and they direct you somewhere else. That is a, that's an intervention. In our world, an intervention is being able to, to, to uh, create a plan to help somebody uh, move in a way that is supportive of a better life. And in many cases, if it becomes what is a, a formal intervention, 
it is a process where we work with the family to align with a message that can be delivered to the person of concern in a loving and dignified way. Sometimes that person is invited into a family meeting. And sometimes if that person we know is super resistant and would never come, we'll, we'll figure out a way to, to bring the meeting to them. And as an interventionist, it's really being able to set the, the, the stage and the environment for a, a respectful and dignified meeting that has a family really share a lot about what their concerns are and what their hopes are and what their ask is. And as an interventionist, it's being able to work with the, the group and the loved ones to deliver this message and then be prepared in that meeting and, and prepared in advance as to how this person may respond, what their objections are gonna be, where, what, what their response is gonna be, and really how do, we, uh, how do we respond to those? Because ultimately there's a specific ask for somebody to do something. It may be go to treatment, it may be get a more thorough assessment, and it's really an understanding of what they're being asked to do and in many cases, it's also helping the family not continuing to enable the behavior that allowed the, the things to continue without help. So most of the time enabling is, is love in a way that's not healthy. And, and unhealthy caregiving in many cases can be called enabling the word codependent is thrown around, but what is it that the system or an individual in the system is doing to allow this to continue without break? And what we want to do is interrupt that and intervene on that. And we help families do that in a loving way. I really enjoy your use of analogies and I like the road construction analogy. That was terrific. And you've used some others, but you make it sound easy. Like a family comes in and they're emotional, resentful, and fear-filled by the time things get escalated to you. How, how, how are you able to kind of make that work without the whole thing blowing up? So um, it is a lot of emotion present. When we get called, somebody is really concerned or a bunch of somebodies. And what they're concerned about is how things are currently going. And there's some hope for it to be changed in some way. And what our initial job is, is to help people agree or align with what it is that they would like to have happen. And if we can get alignment or agreement on that, we can also say, listen, we recognize that you may not agree with a lot of things and there may be family issues here. There may be all kinds of historical issues for purposes of what we're doing. Let's focus on what we agree upon and put the other things in a parking lot, not forget about them, but let's show up here in a way that supports what it is that we're trying to do. See, an interventionist is not a family therapist. An interventionist has a job that's very specific in getting somebody out of their current situation into a better one. And so it's really about alignment. Got it, it's about alignment, okay. And do you call that a commitment statement? You know, we do in this process, we'll create a commitment statement because like we spoke of earlier, there is a certain amount of things present that help something grow. 
So the way of being that the family is in this might look like the Smith family is com is committed together to being loving, patient, courageous, direct, and uh, uh, compassionate so that Johnny can get the help that he needs. And we work on that together. Those ways of being are agreed upon by people. And we use that um, as a as really a compass or a north star because a true north, because in many cases when emotions rise and somebody gets short and angry, we can look back at that statement and recognize that if really what we're wanting to do is accomplish getting Johnny help, that that outbursts and anger are not in support of that. So it's not in making somebody bad or wrong, but is if we made this commitment to, to loving, patient, and compassionate, then let's redirect, because it is a choice. Great. Um, we talked about, I asked you about Al-Anon previously, and, and you had shared that that's one of the um, services or platforms that you recommend depending upon the individual situation right so you 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 kind of put together a program that includes your own counseling and then where where other programs or services can be included. yeah i mean our program really provides a clinical management and oversight and part of that is making recommendations some of those recommendations may be family coaching and we have family coaches that work with our company to help people get educated to work on their own uh their own self-care right to help with strategy and working with how to deal with certain situations but also we recommend to support groups like Al-Anon the 12 steps um and 12 step groups are by far the biggest and most successful uh uh support groups of so many different areas that are out there. And everybody may not agree with 12 steps or feel comfortable with them. But boy, if if in the first step where it talks about we're powerless over something and our life has become unmanageable, if we pull out the specific substance or behavior, if people lived by the rest of those 12 steps, there is uh, there's a lot of incredible knowledge, guidance, support that's inside of that. And Al-Anon is just a beautiful, beautiful approach to helping people not feel alone and get supported through uh, working through these issues as a family member. Great. So you uh, live in the cold suburbs of Detroit in Bloomfield, Michigan, but you also have a satellite office in Delray Beach, Florida, and also work virtually. Can you can you tell us how you support people locally and virtually with your services? Yeah, for sure. You know, our company uh, with offices in, in Michigan and uh, Florida, with also people working with us in different parts of the country, depending on the situation, in many cases, much of what we can do is is virtual, a lot of preparation meetings and, and information and uh, assessment gathering can happen virtually. And then um, we have boots on the ground in, in uh, many, many areas that we work with people 
face-to-face. In the case of uh, interventions and, and acute issues, there are a group of us that are willing to get on a plane and, and have traveled all over the, the country and world to, you know, to do this kind of work. And everything that we do is unique. You know, this is, we don't have a cookie cutter uh, product for sale. People are coming to us with situations. We meet them where they're at. And our job is to really be able to get a good understanding of what's up and work with them closely to come up with recommendations. The type of care, the specific providers, and even the strategy of how we get that person to say yes. And then help implement those plans. That's really in the shortest way uh, an overview of how our services work. So you can meet anybody where they're at, depending upon the circumstance. Yeah, that's for sure. And that you know, when you talk about the people uh, and the culture of our company, there's just a incredible commitment to helping people. And everybody that's here has some type of story, either their own or a family member, that really drives a passion for this work. And we work collaboratively as a, as a team. We have some amazing people that are part of this company and, and uh, it's, uh, it's great work. Good to see your passion and pride. Yeah. So a lot of people have heard the word intervention. You described what an interventionist does. Can you just tell us about your training in that? What is somebody who want, who is an interventionist? How do they get trained in order to be able to do the type of work that you do? Yeah, in my particular case, um, I have attended uh, two different intervention trainings um, and then followed very closely and have been part of, uh, at first, uh, participating in them in what is called second chair, where there is a main interventionist. So the short answer is I've been through several different trainings and then uh, was able to observe uh I believe 10 or 12 interventions before I did what we, what we call first chair intervention. Great. And you've been doing this for quite some time now. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's probably a dozen years now. Great. Is before I um, close, before we close and I talk about where can people reach you and find out more information, is there anything else you, you, you'd care to share? No, I mean, it's great to great to be here and be able to talk about this. And um, we're available if anybody is struggling out there or wants any information, uh, we'd, we'd love to we'd love to talk. Great. So uh, where can people reach you and your team? So our website is FeinbergCare.com, F-E-I-N-B-E-R-G-C-A-R-E.com. And our phone number is uh, 248-538-5425. And my personal email is steve at feinbergcare.com. Excellent. Well, thanks for all the insight, the transparency, uh, and and all the all that you do to help people and 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 for all you and your team as well. Well, appreciate it. Thank you so much. Hi, thank you for listening to this podcast. I hope you're enjoying Winning Parenting. And it's not only enjoyable, but inspirational and educational for you. If you like this podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you were able to post a positive review 
on whatever podcast app you use. That enables us to reach more listeners who can benefit and enjoy. Also, if you have people you think would benefit from it, I'd really appreciate it, and I know they would if you would share it with them. If you have any topics that are of interest to you, feel free to email me at andy at parentsjourneycoaching.net. Similarly, if you have an interest in any of my parent coaching services, feel free again at andy at parentsjourneycoaching.net. Thank you.